On trial for war crimes, today's Special Operations Chief Edward Gallagher is facing the fight of his life. The highly decorated Navy SEAL platoon leader stands charged with murdering a wounded ISIS fighter captured in Mosul, Iraq in 2017, and with shooting two unarmed civilians, a school-age girl and an elderly man from a sniper's nest, who prosecutors say pose no threat. Gallagher denying all charges, his wife standing by his side. We have witnesses that say this never happened. This, this person took their last breath due to the injuries that they had sustained. But what happened in our case was after NCIS terrorized our family, they then took my husband out of a TBI clinic on September 11th, Patriot's Day nonetheless, and then have proceeded to torture him 72 hours in solitary confinement and then 15 weeks in jail at the Brig at Miramar. Wow. And this is unfathomable that they would do this you know, to our troops. Andrea, yeah. your message to Army leadership, you know, Navy leadership, to the president, to, to those that have the power to review this case. My husband is innocent. He has proclaimed his innocence all along. These lies and rumors that were cobbled together by millennial SEALs are shameless and utterly false. It was picked up by NCIS who cobbled together the case in order to advance the careers of the people that started this and wanted to win more than the truth. They hid exculpatory evidence. Then you have a prosecution that's willing to go to any lengths to commit criminal behavior to put someone away for life. You cannot break the law to uphold it. And that's what we're seeing here. We are pleading for the American public to understand that what is happening to my husband is in fact a travesty of justice He's and it's far from American. Andrea, it's we're going to get cut off there. Our best to your family. He faces trial May 20th. Tonight, vindication for a Navy SEAL. The jury acquitting Chief Edward Gallagher of six of the seven charges against him, including premeditated murder. Huge victory, huge weight off the Gallagher's. In a trial with no physical evidence, the most jaw-dropping moment, shocking testimony from fellow SEAL Team medic Corey Scott, admitting under immunity that it was he, not Gallagher, who killed the wounded ISIS detainee. And there was a lot of emotion as that verdict was being read. Gallagher and his wife embracing as she's crying tears of joy. The entire defense team shooting out of the Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have a very special guest on with me for this podcast. Uh, it's someone that you guys are probably familiar with. He's retired Navy SEAL, Eddie Gallagher. Uh, Eddie, how's it going, man? Good, good, man. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad that we're able to do this. Uh, you know, your your story has been has become polarized and uh, you know, sort of blown up in the media, and then it's it's turned into like a conservative versus liberal thing, and uh, and and we'll get into all of that. Yeah. So before we get into your story and career, you know, into the Navy, um, you know, now that this this whole sort of media circus uh, surrounding your your final deployment is over, and you're actually retired, how are you feeling these days? Uh, right. I'm feeling good, man. Uh, you know, the, I, uh, retired, uh, over a year ago. Uh, I think as soon as I, as I departed the Navy, uh, the, the, that first year was, it was rough, had its ups and downs, um, you know, dealing with transition out of the military, 
as well as the uh, two or three years of chaos my family and I endured with with everything and uh, you know dealing with the aftermath of the smear campaign that certain entities uh, like the New York Times would constantly put out. Um, but you know, it's uh, I think COVID <laughs> took over most of uh, most of everything. So it definitely died down, which is a good thing. And then uh, we've we're just pressing forward, man. Um, we don't uh, look in the rear view. We're just like, what's next? Right. Um, so it's going good. Yeah, I know. Just transitioning f- for most people is, you know, it has its own difficulties. You know, from going to or sort of getting off that speeding train, as they kind of say, and um, yeah, and then to do that with all this craziness going on in the media, uh, it's, it's, I could imagine it's super difficult for you guys. But um, when the, all the stories first came out, you're, and I think you were incarcerated, your wife and your brother. Uh, I mean, they were everywhere. I, I saw them all the time on news media, social media, uh, you know. Mm-hmm. And it, it was really awesome to see people just sticking up for you while you weren't really able to stick up for yourself. Yeah, I mean, those two are they are my heroes. I mean, my wife, I've always known my wife to be, you know, she's a strong, strong woman. You have to be to be uh, married to, you know, a special operator, no matter what branch you're in, and to put up with the uh, demands and you know you have to women have to develop that uh that strong will and then the um also the able to do life without you you know so they they're pretty much single mothers um so you know when all this happened i think my wife you know got this she it just lit a fire inside her because she you know not only had i been serving for the past 20 years so has she so have my kids they put up with everything and so for them to try and just throw me away for nothing to use me as an example, she wasn't going to put up with it. And, uh, she, she put her foot down and like started speaking out. Um, and then my brother joined in with her. Um, and you know, together they took on the United States government and the media and won, which is no easy feat. That's, uh, I think that's, I definitely want that to be overlooked. And that's, I mean, that's the main reason I wrote the book is to sort of show, exactly what they did um and you know if this happens to other people they can use it as a roadmap. and what's the name of your book uh the man in the arena okay and uh and what is the you know what is the release date for that uh we are hoping we think it's going to be around uh may okay sometime okay awesome and is it available for pre-order now it is. We're going to shut down the pre-orders here uh, in a week. But yeah, right now it's it's available for pre-order at uh, eddiegallagherbook.com or you can go on to um, Amazon as well. Okay, awesome. All right, so, so let's sort of rewind a little bit and go back to the beginning of your career in the Navy. So did you join the Navy intending to become a SEAL? Um, I did. Uh, it was a very quick decision though i i wasn't i didn't grow up you know wanting to be one um you know my dad was in the army i i was your typical army brat moved around every two years uh until high school and then i finished out high school in fort wayne indiana um and i sort of tried college for half a semester i was like this isn't for me uh did worked odd jobs and finally 
was like, you know what, I'm, I got to get out of here. And, you know, I knew if I wanted to join the military, I wanted to do something, uh, that had to do with fighting or, you know, um, going behind enemy lines doing, you know, as you watch up, you, as you grow up, you, uh, you know, I grew up watching commando predator, you know, Navy seals, all that. So I, I, in my mind, I was like, I want to do stuff like that now. Uh, <laughs> it, it wasn't definitely not like that Hollywood, but, um, I knew that I wanted to challenge myself as well. So I walked right into the Navy office, um, and told him I wanted to be a seal. And did you go straight through to that pipeline? No. So, uh, I joined in 99, um, uh, back then it was, they didn't have the, uh, pipeline. Um, <clears throat> you had to pick a rate, which is your job in the Navy. Uh, so I picked uh, corpsman, um, which I was told would help me get to buds. Uh, but it was actually the opposite. I went to boot camp. Uh, they told me that the SEAL teams were overmanned in Corman at the time. So I would have to choose another duty station. Um, and since I didn't have a contract or anything, I, uh, I was forced to do that. But, you know, it, it worked out. I got to uh, go work with the Marines. Um, so I got assigned to uh, 1st Battalion, 8th Marines in uh, Camp Lejeune and spent my first four years in the Navy there. Um, which was I, I couldn't ask for anything better. I love the Marines. And, I, and were you attached to the infantry there? Yeah. So uh, I did my first platoon uh, at a, in an infantry infantry platoon just as a regular uh, medic. Um, and then I screened the next first one I screened and went to a state platoon, which is the uh, scout sniper platoon for the battalion and pretty much that platoon is filled with uh, snipers or guys waiting to go to sniper school and they get farmed out to the different platoons in the battalion, you know, when we deploy or go do training. Um, so I, I made the screening through that. Um, and that was probably one of the best times, you know, I got to be around uh, a bunch of individuals who were really uh, determined to be masters of their craft. So we trained all the time. Um, and I got a slot to Marine Corps sniper school, um, which is very uh, unheard of uh, since I was a Navy corpsman. But the deal was I was able to go to sniper school, but I just would not receive uh, a certificate of completion if I completed it just because I was a Navy corpsman. But, you know, I did, that didn't bother me one bit. Uh, I went through, um, you know, I got a letter of uh, saying that I had completed the course. And, uh, you know, I got that much more training under my belt before I went to uh, BUDS. So that's pretty interesting. So then later in your career, did you have to go through a, a sniper school again as a SEAL or was that good enough? That was good enough. And, uh, you know, I, I was I wasn't certain that they would uh, the teams would um, honor that. But they uh, they looked it up. I think they called back to the schoolhouse and they were like, yeah, he's, he's good to go. Um, so they, you know, were like, OK, yeah, you're a sniper. So that was definitely um also different checking in as a new guy and already having that qualification. Okay. Awesome. So let's, um, let's go. Can you talk about your experience at buds a little bit? Like, you know, how was that for you? Um, you know, going through that? Uh, sure. Yeah. Buds was, um, I, I mean, I had a great time there. It was, I, it took so long for me to get there. Uh, like I said, I was doing the four years 
at Camp Lejeune. But during that time, I had probably screened for buds uh, about a dozen times, passing each time, but just was always denied because I had to finish out my my time at the Marines. Um, it got pretty frustrating and, you know, almost to the point where I was about to just throw in the towel and be like, these guys are never going to let me go. Um, luckily, there was one chief who who checked into 1A and he marched me right down to uh, admin and got me orders. So by the time I had, you know, was allowed to go to Buds, I, you know, drove across country to San Diego. I mean, that was probably the most excited I'd been in my life. So I was just grateful every day that I was there. Um, and I had, I had really, really trained up for, it. uh, you know, the past, the four years I was with the Marines, I was completely obsessed with buds. I had done everything. I, everything in my power, I thought to, uh, prepare physically, um, and mentally. So <clears throat> I think when I, I went to buds, I was 24. Um, I was pretty mature compared to some of the other guys that were there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, buds, buds is difficult no matter what. I mean, you, you show up, um, you know, in the best shape, it's, it's not going to matter. You know, it's going to beat you down. Um, it's, I mean, it does matter to show up in shape, but it's, it's not a guaranteed pass. You know, they're going to beat you down there. They're going to see how much you're going to take, um, how much grit you have. Um, and, uh, I got, I got rolled in second phase for uh, pool competency, um, and I started off in class two five one, got rolled into two five two. Um, but you know, after that, it was it was smooth sailing. Um, it was it was a good time. Uh, I think they, you know, the saying is it's the best time you'd ever want to have again. <laughs> Getting rolled essentially that means that you're you're pulled to the side, and then you continue with the class that's coming behind yours. Exactly. Yeah. So I don't, I'm not sure how they, they do it now back then that you, if you got rolled, um, so I, I had failed, uh, the pool comps, evolution, you go in front of a board, um, of instructors and they, they pretty much deem what's going to happen to you. Um, and it, it all depends on your character, um, your peer evaluations as a in the class, how the instructors think of you. Uh, I, I walked in there with one other guy, um, who had failed, uh, as well and they they kicked him out and kept me um so i mean it's it's definitely your reputation starts from the time you get there um since i i had a pretty decent reputation the instructors decided to give me a second chance which i was grateful for and yeah i just waited till the uh next class came along but in between then you know you're at you're uh they call they call it a rollback land and you're just waking up every day working out uh rehabbing if you're injured, rehabbing whatever you need to get rehabbed, um, and just awaiting for the next class. And how long were you in that sort of, uh, that space? Uh, I believe probably for about a month, a little less than a month. And do you think being there and since you weren't injured, did it help with you, with your conditioning and things like that? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, because I got rolled, you know, it was, after hell week, um, your body's still recovering. Um, and I mean, I was, I was in pretty good shape, uh, not too bad, but you know, since I got rolled, I had no choice but to just relax and work out every day. And so, yeah, I, it definitely, um, upped my game when it, when it, when I rolled back into the class, I was, you know, one of the top physical performers. 
And what year was it that you went to Bud's? Uh, 2004. Okay. And then, uh, so you graduate, and then what team did you go to? Uh, so after graduating Bud's, you, well, you go to SQT, which is SEAL qualification training. That's about another uh, seven months. Um, at the end of that, you run your trident. And from there, because I was a medic already, I went to uh, 18 Delta or uh, Special Operations Combat Medicine. And that is another that was another eight months of uh, schooling uh, that was in Fort Bragg. And then finally, after that, I checked into uh, Team One. So all in all, from this, the moment you started Buds till the time you checked into SEAL Team One, how long was that period? Um, I would say altogether um, two years. Ooh, it's a long time. Almost, yeah. It's a lot of schooling, but uh, it, it goes by quick. I mean, you're. It seems like a long time, but it, it really did go by quick. Um, you know, I was pretty frustrated not to check into uh, SEAL Team One right away after SQT, but I was glad that I went to the uh, medical course. Yeah, so SEALs and um, Green Berets, I, I guess. It, Depends a little bit on specifically what your job is, but the the pipeline is roughly the same time. It's about two years, I guess. Yeah, I believe so. Okay, so after you uh, you checked in the SEAL Team One, uh, did you have a workup, or were you guys you know he- heading overseas at that point? Can you talk about that? Oh, no, I yeah, I checked in. Um, our the platoon I checked into was starting workup the week after I checked in. So it was a really like quick turnaround. Um, you know, I checked in, tried to get all my gear issued, which didn't didn't really happen until after our first couple trips. But yeah, we uh, we went right and work up. You know, I, we flew out to um, Memphis, uh, went to Shaw's, it's a shooting school, and did our CQB training. And from there, it was just uh, a roller coaster ride. Um, you know, you're you're just training nonstop. Um, and after, uh, it's about six months of, um, ULT or workup. And then we do about another couple months of, uh, individual training. And then we deployed to, uh, hit Iraq. Okay. So you have eight deployments total. Uh, correct. And the majority of those were to Iraq or to Afghanistan? Uh, Iraq, Afghanistan. And then I have... Two, uh, one pre nine eleven that was uh, I was when I was with the Marines, and then uh, one to um, Dubai, which is I worked as a crisis response element. Okay, so you know, having been having experience in both Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, can you talk to some of the differences, you know, operating in in those environments? Uh, yeah, uh, I, I mean Iraq. The places that uh, we operated in is definitely more urban. Um, it's uh, Iraq is just uh, how do I? They're further on with like the way they you know they're industrial. Um, they're not as uh, third world as Afghanistan. I guess is the way best way I can put it. Uh, right. It was definitely a, a different type of environment to operate in. I felt like in Iraq. Uh, just a little bit more high strung um you're you know you're going through the city there's 
you know, you're constantly looking through at windows and stuff, especially if you're in the turret. Um, there's just a different sense uh, of the way the way you operate. And then Afghanistan was more like the Wild West. Um, a lot of, you know, mountainous, but then a lot of uh, open terrain. Um, and the firefights and stuff we got into there were, you know, more at a distance uh, from anywhere from, you know, 400 yards to 1,800 yeah, if you, you know, there's footage from all kind of different units who are fighting in Afghanistan, and the majority of it, it looks like they're shooting at people who are really far away. Yep. Yeah, so, the, yeah, the Taliban there, I mean, they're not, you know, they're not dumb. Taliban, or it's just, it could just be farmers defending their their land. Um, but, yeah, they, they know the game. Um, they know where to shoot from. They know where to hide. Uh and so, you know, and because of the, the way the terrain is, it makes it very difficult to uh, PID or spot exactly where they're coming from until uh, until you've been engaged long enough. And you're like, OK, I, you know, we now we know where they are. Uh, and it's uh, Afghanistan was very eye opening. I remember the first time going there, going out on our first stop and, you know, listening to the ICOM chatter. And it's almost like a video game. They were like talking openly on on icon saying yeah hey, we're about to ambush them from the west side at in 30 minutes and so we're like okay they must be coming from that way and sure enough <laughs> you know 30 minutes rpgs everything would start flying at us and i was just uh i mean it it was it was fun it was uh it was like okay this is this is the way we're playing this um but yeah it it worked like clockwork like that every time go out watch the women and children leave and you know, in herds, and then you knew the fight was coming. So, when you were in Afghanistan, were you guys running? Uh, I'm not sure if this is how the SEALs refer to it, but the the village stability operations. Were you doing that kind of stuff? Uh, we, yeah, I did that. Um, yeah, near my first deployment to Afghanistan, right at near the end, is when. Um, they started village stability operations. So before that, we were doing disruption ops, which is we were going out to Taliban-held territory, um, a lot of bazaars to where they were, you know, hiding their uh, the uh, opium, heroin, all the stuff that makes them money. Uh, we were working with DEA at the time, and also finding you know all their caches um, of weapons and everything else. So those were those were a good time because every time we go there, you know, it was going to be a big fight because that was the Taliban's uh, money that we were taking. Um, and then once near the end of that deployment, that's when uh, coin the coin strategy counterinsurgency strategy came out to where they switched from going out and hammering the Taliban to now you're going to go out and uh help stabilize these villages which is why the, you know village stability operations definitely was a different mission set um for especially for seals um you know green berets god bless them that's i think that's their bread and blo- bread and butter um, right is working with the locals doing the hearts and minds um um all for a purpose but for us it was sort of like okay now you guys are doing this um i but you know we we got used to it um it took us a little bit to figure out how to use this uh, VSO to our advantage, but you know, team guys or seals are they're uh, 
team guys will be team guys, and they'll find a way to use whatever we're being told to uh, find and destroy the enemy. So what was the reaction like when you guys were told, all right, this is, you guys now have to do these VSOs? Like, how was that received? Uh, we were pissed. Yeah. Not, not, not everybody was uh, happy about it, um, you know, myself included. We just, we really couldn't understand um, why we were doing it. Um, and I think we, you know, we got told from our CEO, you know, we can, they, we, they rogered us up for it because we can do just everything green berets can do. Um, you know, and we'll do it better. And we're like, well, you know, you could have us go, you know, mop the floor and we'll do a good job of that. It doesn't mean we should be doing that. You know, it's, right. uh, but we're in the military, you follow orders and you're just like, okay, then this is, this is the new mission. Um, you know, it's, I don't think it was a good mission. I don't agree with the coin strategy. I, I know that it was, uh, you know, they tried, they tried to put that in place to help stabilize Afghanistan. But, uh, as you can see, <laughs> didn't work it, out. It didn't work yeah. still there. Uh, you know, we lost a lot of American lives who were acting as law enforcement in these villages. Um, you know, patrolling the villages, trying to help them out, which, you know, they do need help. But at some point, you know, I, I think America had, you know, needs to call it and be like, you know, why are American troops dying over there? What's the objective? Right. Yeah. So, so you feel like when it got to that point, you would have preferred to just say it's time to pull out? I wouldn't know. I wouldn't say it was time to pull out. I would say we should have kept on doing what we were doing because we okay. were having uh, massive massive uh effects on it i mean we were we were crushing it um we weren't close to winning but we were getting there um and i think you know they once they pulled that under the rug from us and they were like nope this is what you're going to do we it sort of just set us back um so i i think we should have just kept going with what we were doing and do you, did you have any insight as to you know what the thinking was behind the whole coin strategy um, yeah, I mean, I, I understood they, they tried it in Vietnam or they did it in Vietnam. Um, that's how, you know, I think they helped, but well, we didn't win the war over there either, but I guess they got, uh, you know, some good effects from it there. So they, I know general, um, wasn't, uh, Petraeus. It was the, uh, I cannot remember his name. I don't know. I'm skipping on his name. He was the one that got fired under Obama. Um, uh, Oh, and they did but the movie. He, uh, you're talking about, was it McChrystal, maybe? That's, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, like, came in, and that was that was his going to be his strategy to win the war. Um, you know, and I, I think he had a lot of pressure at the time to to win, uh, to get something done, and um, that was going to be it, but it's, you know, it didn't pan out. Right. So I wanted to ask, so your your first deployment was to Iraq, um, and I'm assuming this is where you got into your first gunfight? Uh, yeah, correct. Are you able to talk about that time and like sort of what your mindset was before it happened and then maybe walk through that a little bit? Um, I think the mindset was, you know, we we were all hungry to... Uh, to get after it, to go find the bad guys. I mean, I, I, I was with a just phenomenal platoon. Um, I had, you know, the best, uh, older guys that I could ask for that mentored us. Um, and plus the, you know, my peers that I came up with were some, were the best guys I've ever worked with. Uh, 
so we all had the same mindset. We were ready to go. I had a very aggressive chief at the time who we, you know, I think we went out on our first stop the, the night we landed. Uh, so it was good. Like we were told to, uh, be ready to, uh, stay busy. Uh, we'll be working and that, uh, you know, we'll be engaging the enemy. Uh, so there was nothing really surprising, um, about it. It was, you know, and then after I think the first couple of gunfights or whatever, you, you, you sort of know whether you're like, this is the job I belong in or it isn't. Um, you know, there's some guys after getting shot at, they're like, eh, maybe this isn't for me and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but then, you know, there's guys that are like, yep, this is exactly what I wanted. Um, and that's, you know, that platoon I was with, everybody had that same mindset. So it was really awesome. And who were you guys fighting at the time? Was it Al-Qaeda in Iraq? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. then eventually they sort of morphed into uh, ISIS. Yeah. Um, you know, we that formed out of the prison camp that we were putting Al-Qaeda in. Um, but yeah, ISIS eventually, you know, formed up. But I think at that point we had pulled out of Iraq or were pulling out, um, you know, all operations had ceased and they just got, they just grew and grew. Um, and that was, that led up to my last deployment, which was back to Iraq, to Missoula, to, uh, our, our, uh, mission was to retake the city of Mosul from ISIS, which they had just spent like the last years, last three years building up, um, defensive positions and everything. So it was, uh, it was definitely interesting. So your last deployment, what year was that? Was that 2017, 2018? 2017. 2017, okay. And at this time, you were no longer at SEAL Team 1? No. So this, uh, at this point, so I went from SEAL Team 1. Um, I became a first phase buzz instructor for about a little over a year. Uh, and then I checked into SEAL Team 7. And that was my third deployment at 7 um, to Missoula, Iraq. Okay. And um, so let's talk about the, uh, can we talk about that deployment, the 2017 deployment? Sure. All right. So at this point, you were a team leader? I was the uh, platoon chief, correct. Platoon chief, okay. So essentially that means you're in charge of the guys on the ground? Yeah, so I'm uh, the um, tactical lead. So the way the uh, rank structure in a SEAL platoon you have your OIC officer in charge, you have your platoon chief, and then you have two junior officers who are essentially new guys, but they, they check in their officers. So they're automatically, you know, you know, essentially they're even in charge of me since they're officers, but they're, uh, they're next. And then it's, uh, whoever, you know, the enlisted below whoever falls, you know, in higher rank, you have your LPO and below. Um, so yeah, I was in charge of the, tactical situation um sort of running day-to-day of the platoon um and the oic is you know he looks the best way to describe it he looks uh, up and out and then i look you know down and in and up and out as well but um yeah so how long was that trip uh that deployment was seven months okay and that was um you know, retaking Mosul from ISIS. Uh, you know, I've seen there's been a couple like documentaries on that, but from the ones that I saw, it was from the perspective of the Iraqis. Um, you know, the Iraqi counterterrorism force. Uh, yeah. 
So were you guys in there working with the Iraqi Special Forces? So, yeah, the way um, it was broken down. So we, you know, we had a presence in Iraq this whole time. Um, but um, under Obama, you, they were no one had the authority to go past the forward line of troops. Um, and they had not cleared into Mosul yet. They had, we were just going, they called it the FLOT, which is the forward line of troops. And they would just uh, get eyes on Mosul. Um, or eyes on whatever area they were looking at. And then in order to engage, they would have to ask permission, like from five different chains, uh, which some of it, you know, went to generals in the White House to say, yes, you can drop a bomb or yes, you can shoot a javelin or whatever. Um, When Trump took over, that was right when we deployed. Uh, I think he, he became president. We deployed about a month later. Um, he pretty much put all the authority into the ground force commander, which would have been my OIC. Um, and also we fell under the uh, MARSOC command. So it would have been, um, the CEO of that MARSOC command, um, to have authority to engage. Um, and we were also told, you know, I think even general Mattis at the time, who he said, he's like, the gloves are off, get this, you know, pretty much get the job done. Um, we were told to be very aggressive, um, that we that they wanted to clear Mosul in a certain amount of time. Um, my uh, one of my best friends was in Mosul when we when we came in his platoon. So they had cleared the east side of Mosul, which was very um, it was more open terrain. And then we were tasked with doing the west side, and that was completely urban. Uh, it was just city block after city block, um, just a massive place. So yeah, we. Right when we landed, we we were partnered up with uh, the Emergency Response Division, um, which is an Iraqi force that uh, MARSOC had uh, partnered up with. So they were they told us to just uh, they gave us a Iraqi officer to sort of be the liaison, and our job was to advise, assist, and accompany them. Um, so we were not still not allowed to be on the front lines. We could be, I think the distance at the time was uh, five to 800 meters behind them um, as they cleared through. And then we would um, try to advise on how they should clear and what tactics they were using. Of course, they, they don't they don't listen to us at all. Uh, they just they wanted us for their, the bombs. So we you know, we controlled the air. So they would tell us, hey, we need bombs dropped here or bombs dropped there. We would shoot mortars. Um and we would also fly the Puma, uh, which is um, uh, a little little plane that you can, does an aerial reconnaissance, and we can um, try to find the bad guys that were ISIS that way. Um, so that was that was the mission. Um, it definitely, you know, it, it sort of seems easy when it's explained, like yeah, you just stay 800 meters behind, and as they clear, you you know, you come up from from the rear, but. It was a lot more chaotic than that. Uh, that city, you know, like I said, had been uh, built up. The defenses have been built up by ISIS for three years. So, I mean, they had tunnels going for miles uh, all over the place. That It was riddled with IEDs. Um, I've, I'd, on all my deployments, I'd never seen so many IEDs. Uh, they had V-bids, vehicle-borne IEDs every day. You know, we called it V-bid Palooza around 11 o'clock. They just start going off, you know, trying to drive at us, and you could you could watch like twenty go off. Uh, That's crazy. Yeah, it, it was it was something. Uh, I mean, I was 
I was happy to be there. I was like, this is insane. And, you know, this, you know, this is going to be a, this is a once in a lifetime thing to be a part of such a, I guess, savage war and be able to just sort of dip our toe in when we want. And, and if we don't want to, we're like, okay, we're going to, you know, wait this out. Uh, but <clears throat> it was busy, uh, very busy, um, very tiresome. The uh, living conditions we, we were living in were sort of like VSO style. Um, we were just, you know, living in random Iraqi houses. Uh, no, no, you know, uh, we, no showers, you know, MREs, you know, typical living conditions that I, I was used to. Um, and, uh, it was, uh, it was a very, it was a very good deployment. No matter, you know, no matter what happened afterwards, that deployment was very successful. We did clear Mosul, um, in the time that we were there, um, actually with a month to spare. So, um, you know, I was, I was proud of my guys for, for that. So, you know, from that specific battle in Mosul, uh, mm-hmm. there was a lot of, you know, you can go on Twitter and, and see, you know, from people who are on the ground or the civilians or whatever, and, and like they're posting videos from battles and it'll be on Twitter in 15 minutes after, you know. Um, yeah. So it, it kind of changed. And, and then some of that was happening in Syria as well. So it kind of changed the dynamic of like people understanding what's going on there. Um, and you can get it in, in that instant, you know, social media uh style basically um so the, you know we, we saw a lot of things like um isis would uh basically just get like consumer drones like dji drones and attach you know some kind of explosive to it and just yep. fly the drones into like iraqi army positions were you experiencing any of that oh yeah yeah it's on a daily basis so that was uh that was also like sort of an eye-opener for for me, for a lot of guys is, you know, now because ISIS had the drone, had drones and they were flying them over. Um, it was definitely a, you know, 360 environment. You had, you had not only did you have to look down for IEDs, now you got to look up in the sky for drones, you know, flying around. Um, and so, yeah, when we, uh, would first go out, ISIS would fly drones over and, you know, they didn't, they wouldn't drop, uh, they weren't dropping little uh, 40 mic mics at first. They would just fly the drone over and fly it back. And the next thing you know, mortars would be coming in. Um, so they'd get, get the location from the drone and just start shooting mortars at us. Um, the uh, ISIS was also using the media that was out there. So, you know, when we first started clearing, there was all types of journalists uh, trying to, you know, tag behind. And, you know, we had told them not to take pictures, but of course they, they don't listen. So they would, uh, take pictures of us or, um, you know, the area that we were working at the time and then put them, you know, put them on the, their site. Well, then ISIS would just look at those pictures, geolocate, and then next, the next day we're getting ordered. Um, so it was definitely a, yeah, it was a, it was a dynamic and just uh crazy environment. Um, and yeah, eventually they started flying drones over and trying to drop 40 mic mic on us, uh, which, never panned out for them thank god but um yeah those and those drones were a pain in the ass to try and shoot down as well it's not it's not as easy as you would think <laughs> so you know with the threat of the ieds and, and things like that and and some of this uh some of this is illustrated in the several documentaries and like i said mostly from the 
the side of the uh, the Iraqis. They had different units and, and things like that. Militias fighting, um, but you see how difficult it was to even move a block. You know, you guys oh, yeah. they'll drive up one block, and then there's like a. I've seen footage where there's like a a house and a garage, and and they would build like these false walls. I think. And in behind the false wall would be like a, a a a truck or something, you know, filled with explosives. And as the Iraqi army guys are going past it, it just clacks off and you know kills a bunch of dudes. Um, yeah. So aside from the the actual IED threat, which really I would imagine slows things down, like slows down the movement and stuff. Were you guys actually seeing ISIS and and getting into gunfights with them? Uh yeah. So at at first. When we uh, went out with the partner force, it was we were we were trying we were, we were learning as we went. So we would go out uh, because this mission set is a, something that we hadn't really trained to. Um, it was uh, it was just different. So we went out. Uh, we did the you know stay back, you know five hundred to eight hundred meters, uh, set up a, like a position, set up the mortars, fly the puma, um, and start trying to help advise um, until usually we started getting mortared um, and then we'd have to try and either move positions or go back, go back to the base. Uh, my OIC and I had uh, about two weeks in had sort of got frustrated. Um, we were like, okay, we need to take more of an offensive posture here uh, because we're just going out and getting mortared every day. So we would uh, pick a spot, send, you know, still set up the mortars, fly the Puma, but then we would send an element um, up a little bit closer, pick out a uh, building, that they uh, could get good eyes on uh, ISIS or get at least get good eyes on the front line of troops and watching them as they clear so we could, uh, you know, help them in any way we could. And that's when we started implementing um, a lot of our organic weapon systems, uh, you know, the sniper rifles, but especially the um, Carl Gustafs and the Javelins. Um, we would... Uh, you know, we would they, the Iraqi partner forces would call back to us like, "Hey, there's a V bit in this building, or we're getting shot at from this building." Um, we would uh, locate it, uh, get eyes on, determine like, "Okay, yeah, they are getting shot at," and then jab jab that building, um, and that would get the Iraqi partners moving again. Um, so that that definitely helped out with the clearance, especially with the speed of the clearance. So within your your platoon. Aside from yourself, did you guys have several snipers uh, operating there? Yeah, so we had, I believe, including myself, five snipers in the platoon. Okay, and is that a lot for a platoon of seals, or? Um, not, not. I would say, back in the day, that would be a lot, but now, um, I'd say that's a pretty common number. Okay, uh, at least at least four per platoon. Okay. So, all right. So now we'll kind of transition a little bit into the your, um, you know, the issues that you faced after this deployment. But it, so from from my understanding, some of the junior guys sort of had an issue with, or, or in their perception of how you were, you know, running things there. Did you pick up on any of that as you were there, like before you left and everything? Yeah, it was not until. Uh near the near the end uh, i would say middle to end where it started coming uh 
becoming an issue or I, I sensed that some of the guys weren't, weren't too happy. Um, and I had, I had, uh, multiple meetings with those guys. Um, cause I would hear we were living in very tight, confined space. So you got to think this is, you know, we had half a platoon in just a small Iraqi house. We were, we were sleeping on top of each other. So conversations that were had could be here, could be heard through the house. So I would pick up on stuff that guys were bitching about. Um, at first I just took it as normal bitching. Um, we were working our asses off. So I was like, okay, these guys were just tired and right. just vent, venting to each other, which is nothing new. Uh, it wasn't until, um, more near the end when, um, I heard, uh, all right. I heard one of the guys saying, you know, they were, they were pissed at me because I was making them work too much. I was making them go out every day. Um, and that they weren't getting enough, enough rest. Um, and that they said, my, you know, I was being overly aggressive. Um, so I had a me- meeting with them again, um, you know, hashed it out. And that's, you know, each at each one of these meetings I had, there was nothing. We never left with, you know, any questions. Everyone was like, OK, yeah, I'm on board. Um, and uh, <clears throat> the, the fact was they weren't. They, they just kept, you know, behind the scenes creating this toxic, uh, toxic environment and, you know, I think one thing that the media has put out and like people might still think that, you know, it was like my whole platoon or it was a bunch of guys. Um, and this will come out in the book, you know, it started off, it's two individuals who just did not like me from the beginning. Um, and they sort of spun this web of toxicity throughout the deployment and tried to get guys to sort of come on board. And they managed to get uh, about two or three other guys to, you know, side with them. Uh, this is after deployment, but, in the end, it all it all didn't pan out, you know, at all. Those guys that sided with them, I think their conscience got the better of them, and they were like, you know, I don't want any part of this anymore. Um, so, yeah, it was. Uh, I definitely knew by the end of deployment, it was it was blatantly obvious these these uh, certain guys didn't like me, and you know, to be honest, I didn't like them either. Um, and I just that last month was of deployment was very. Uh, very chill we had Mazul had been cleared so it was sort of uh guys just sort of you know resting relaxing trying to uh you know get their heads right before we went back back to the states um and instead of doing that these guys would go up and drink we had a bar on top of the roof they would drink every night and sort of try and spin that hate circle more and more um and uh unfortunately you know that's it ended up the way it ended up uh, we got back from deployment and <clears throat> their their accusations which is um if people you know you'll be able to see it in the book and there's nothing about murder there's nothing about war crimes um these guys accusations were just that i was too aggressive um that my tactics were horrible um but the command i had received number one platoon chief after that deployment. Um, and so the command even asked them for examples, how my tactics were dangerous. They couldn't give them anything. Um, the, the examples they did give them were actual tactics and the command was like, Nope, that's actually how it's supposed to be done. Uh, and so since they weren't getting their way through that, then they sort of, uh, raised the allegations to, I was a thief and I was stealing from them. Uh, again, they had no no proof of anything, um, and the command told them to go decompress. 
Um, and about six months, I'd say five to six months later, they came back this time with a whole story. Um, and they said that I had murdered a ISIS prisoner, um, that was in our care, which again, that's not even true at all either. But once they, they said it, they, those accusations came out of their mouth. That was it. Um, you know, I was pretty much guilty until I could prove myself innocent. The command backed these guys um, from the get-go because they knew that an accusation like this would not look good for the institution. Um, So instead of actually looking into and investigating this, they went full force into, we're just going to use Eddie Gallagher as an example, um, that we don't put up with this kind of behavior, even though that behavior didn't happen. Um, So, yeah, that's, uh, you know, that and that ended up and, um, you know, NCIS got involved uh, with once these guys, they went and reported to NCIS that I had uh, committed war crimes and that I had stabbed a ISIS prisoner. Um, And from there, it went off the rails. Um, There was a corrupt NCIS agent named Joel Warpinski who was looking to make a name for himself. and instead of looking at what they were saying in an investiga- investigatory manner, they he came in with a um, prosecution and just would take whatever these guys would say. And if that helped him form his prosecution, he would keep it. And then if anything proved my innocence, he would hide it, um, which came out later as well. Um, they ended up uh, raiding my house. Uh, pulling my kids out of gunpoint, um, took all my stuff, and then eventually um, locked me up. Um, still with no charges. No, I, I, I wasn't charged with anything when they locked me up. They couldn't give me a reason why they were locking me up. Um, they said that I was, well, they tried to say I was a danger to the investigation, which was completely unfound and untrue. Uh, but either way, once you're thrown in military prison, you're you're in there. You ain't getting out uh, until you're trapped. You know, hopefully at your trial, you're found innocent. But if you're not, you're in there for however long. So, so just sort of rewinding back a little bit to the to the actual deployment. How many seals were there with you guys? Um, I altogether seals twenty twenty uh, plus enablers. So we had EOD and then some other enablers. So I would say up to like twenty six to twenty eight. Okay, people so, under us. So how unusual is that? Because you know, I've um, you know I've interviewed a whole bunch of guys over the last couple of years, um, and it seems like for the most part, uh, and most of these guys are special ops guys for Army, Navy, whatever. Uh, it, it seems like there's for, for guys in that world, there's an eagerness to, you know, when you're on a deployment to actually go out and do the job that you train for and and things like that. How unusual is it to hear seals? you know, sort of complain about actually operating. Before we continue, I'd like to talk to you about today's sponsor. Against the Odds is Wondery's new original series, which walks you through the remarkable events of July 2018 in the Tham Luang Cave Complex in northern Thailand. Twelve teenage boys and their soccer coats were exploring the caves when it began to flood. Completely cut off from the outside world, they were forced to retreat deeper into the cave complex. This set off a chain of events that led to an American Air Force Special Operations Search and Rescue Team 
arriving to assist with the rescue. The Royal Thai Army Special Forces Regiment and the Royal Thai Navy SEALs had already begun search and rescue operations. Retired Thai Navy SEAL Suman Kunan volunteered to support the rescue efforts. Unfortunately, he died in a cave due to dive complications during the rescue. Rick Stanton, a British civilian diver, is one of the world's most accomplished cave divers and played a vital role in this rescue. I love hearing stories about the human spirit, and I am amazed at the specialists from around the world who dropped everything to go to Thailand and save lives. The courage shown by the special operators who put their lives on the line to rescue these boys is nothing short of remarkable. Against the Odds captures all of this and more. Rest in peace, Thai Navy SEAL Suman Kunan. Against the Odds is available now on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcast. Start your free trial of Wondery Plus and the Wondery app to listen ad-free. With Against the Odds, feel the suspense. Wondery, feel the story. Uh, very unusual. Um, that's That was one of the... <clears throat> the hardships I, I faced as a leader. Um, I, I don't think I'd ever, I would have ever heard a SEAL say that, you know, I didn't sign up for this or this isn't my, this isn't our job. Um, I don't want to go out, but that's, that's what I was hearing. Um, I think it's very unusual. Uh, you know, the, it's, it's definitely common, especially when you have 20 something guys living together, you know, for seven months in shitty conditions, there will, you know, you'll, their little cliques will form and some guys won't like others. And then a lot of the time, you know, the leadership will get blamed just because they, that's what they can. They're like, Oh, we don't, you know, the shitty conditions because our leadership's not getting anything better. But I mean, that's all common stuff. And that usually doesn't go anywhere past uh, deployment. You know, usually guys come back and they decompress and they're like, Oh, okay. It wasn't that bad. Uh, these guys definitely took it, you know, 20 steps way too far. Um, they didn't take the time to decompress. Um, I think some of them were suffering, uh, from some of the things they had seen on that deployment or done. Um, and instead of taking accountability for those things, they put the, you know, they wanted to put the blame on me, uh, which was pretty evident if you, uh, you know, if you listen to the trial audio or any of their NCIS videos, it's, uh, it was pretty evident, but you know, that's what happened. All right, so let's um can we talk about the the moment where you were actually arrested and yeah. and, and then we kind of if we can sort of walk through some of that and, and I guess this is where you know your wife comes in, your brother comes in. Uh, can you talk through some of that? Sure. So uh um I was at a uh TBI clinic. Uh it was at NICO. It's a branch off of NICO. Um getting checked out. So I was planning on retiring. Um I was at 19 years. Um, so I was just getting everything checked out before, you know, I retired and went into the, uh, real world. Um, and were you going through the, the process that they put people through at NICO when you were there or? Yeah, I was at, it was at Camp Pendleton. Um, and I was there, I was, uh, I had been there for about two weeks, uh, okay. when they <clears throat> came in one morning, um, it was, uh, actually guys from my command, who came in and, you know, I, I believe I was in a meditation class at the time and they pulled me out, said, Hey, we, you know, you, they need to talk to you. I went back into an office with them. They had uh, two MAs, <clears throat> which are mil 
pretty much military police standing there with uh, handcuffs. And they're like, we've been ordered to take you to uh, the brig, which is military prison. Um, I asked like who, you know, I asked every question you can think of, like why, what's going on? Like, we don't have any answers. It's just been signed off. This has been signed off by the Commodore, who was Matt Rosenblum at the time, and the Admiral, which was Admiral Green. Um, you know, I wasn't allowed to ask any questions. I couldn't make any phone calls. They handcuffed me um, and put me in a van and just drove me right to uh, military prison. And that was it. It was, uh, I got put into pretrial confinement. Um, and and uh, was this on the East Coast? This was on the West Coast, so this was okay. at uh, Miramar, the, the Briggs on Miramar, which is a naval, uh, a Marine Air Station. Okay. Yeah. So then you, you get put in, and how long is it before you, you're able to speak to anyone, a lawyer or your family, anything like that? Um, so the first night, so they threw me in solitary for the first three days. Um, I still don't know why, but uh, they put me in there. I was allowed one five-minute phone call that night. So I had, uh, called my lawyer, um, told him to, you know, call my wife and to let her know what's going on. Um, and of course I was sort of, I had no, no clue what was going on or I, I didn't know what to do. So, you know, I was more asking my lawyer and pretty much he explained to me that the military has no bail system and that just to get comfortable and don't get in trouble. Um, that was all I was told the first night. And then from there, it was just uh, bits and pieces of information. Um, you know, my, I think my, once my wife found out that they had locked me up, she was like, they're not, they're not doing this. Um, and this is, you know, obviously she had asked some questions as well and she's like, this isn't right. Um, and that's when she, she at first wrote a letter to my command, um, and to a lot of people, a lot of higher ups in the command explaining what was going on, um, and pretty much asking for help, um, barely got any help. Um, the command ignored her. Uh, and then, um, she went, she pretty much started on her own, uh, this organic, um, campaign on Instagram yeah. and she, she got a lot of followers. Um, uh, you know, then my brother got involved. He, my brother had uh, experience, uh, working on Capitol Hill in the past. So he knew some of the, you know, he knew where to go um, and he would spend his days knocking on congressmen's doors uh, and trying to get people to take notice, which was a lot harder than you would think. Um, a lot of them didn't want anything to do with it, um, especially when the smear article, you know, the article started coming out about me that were all misinformation and lies. And they they uh, painted me as a, some warmongering psychopath from uh, the so. from the claims that these these guys are making about you yeah exactly um and so yeah it, it took it took a lot for people to finally you know get on board and start helping out um but that was you know that wouldn't have been done without the persistence of, of my brother and, and my wife yeah i remember when uh i remember when your wife started posting on instagram um, you know, I had no idea about any of this, about the situation or whatever. And, but you know, things, things grow, people share things. And I, I don't remember exactly when, or, you know, when it was that I saw any of this, but I remember seeing it. I'm like, okay. And then I'm, you know, I'm following and, and paying attention. Um, but it, it seemed to me, you know, having some understanding of, of some of the, the history of the, you know, the last 20 years of, and, and how the seals fit into that and, 
you know, there has been some bad press for the Seals over the years. Um, yeah. And it just seemed to me like you were the guy that they chose as, like, we're going to make an example of Eddie Gallagher. Um, and then it's interesting because I'm from New York. I'm, you know, I grew up in Manhattan. So for the most part, uh, people are pretty liberal over here. You, you do have some conservatives or whatever, but it's mostly liberal. So, yeah. you know, from the people that I know growing up or went to school with or whatever, majority liberal. Um, and then I remember uh, at some point, I don't remember if it was Trump Jr. or Trump. Uh, eventually it was, you know, President Trump got involved in it. But I don't remember if Trump Jr. picked up on it somehow on Instagram first. Um, but once Trump got involved, it seemed like this became another issue, another partisan issue to, to battle about. Uh, did you feel like that was the case? Oh, yeah. This So, you know, while I was locked up, like we had said, my wife and brother were like just going going to town on trying to get the word out on what was going on. Um, eventually they got on Fox. They were, you know, told they could come on Fox and explain what was going on or tell us, tell their side. And my wife was told that the president watches Fox and friends avidly every morning. Um, so she got on there. She did a hell of a job explaining. And I think, yeah, well, the president told me himself when I talked to him, like, that's how he took notice. He was pretty okay. impressed with the way my wife, uh, spoke, represented herself, represented me. Um, and that's when he was like, oh, I'm going to take a look into this. Uh, you know, he, he didn't make this decision to what, what he did is he told the military to let me out of prison uh, to so I could properly defend myself. Uh, at that time, I had been in for about seven months and uh, they were violating every one of my rights. They weren't letting me talk to my lawyers. Um, they weren't you know, let me have certain visitations. Um, every like the the cards were stacked against me. Um, and so what he did is he's like, get him out of there, so he can properly defend himself. He wasn't saying I was guilty or not guilty. He just said, due to his past service, let him out so he can probably defend himself. The media, of course, especially the you know left wing or liberal media who already, you know, can't stand Trump, just took that as a like, uh, they took advantage of that situation to demonize me even more. Uh, they were like, oh, now this dude's definitely evil. Because right. The now he's on it. Trump's side. Right, right, right. Yeah. And, you know, it was, I, we definitely felt it. Um, I mean, I remember Hillary Clinton tweeted my face um, and said, this is grotesque. Yep. And, I remember that. And that, I mean, that right there was like, wow. Was that like a, so, a holy shit moment for you or? Um, I was just, I mean, honestly, at that moment, I was like, this is probably the best thing she could have done is go ahead and say something negative about me. I mean, at that point in time, the people that were against me were just going to be against me just because, because right. Trump had backed me. But because she, when she tweeted that, the people that were not even like not really paying attention to the story or just being like, uh, then they definitely got on my side. If they hated Hillary Clinton, it was like, we're behind Eddie Gallagher. They had, even if they didn't know about the story and it was the same thing on the left side, we hate Eddie Gallagher, but we don't even know what the story's about. It's just because the president backed him. Uh, so it was, yeah, it was definitely interesting, man. We got a firsthand lesson, um, 
you know, drank through a fire hose on fake news, how the media controls the narrative. Um, so yeah, it, that we definitely felt it at that. And, um, and what people, a lot of people don't know either is, you know, before my trial, there was a rumor going around that the president was going to pardon me before trial, uh, myself. And I believe the two other guys, he eventually did pardon. Um, we did, we told him, you know, we don't want it. I was like, we, me and my wife both are like, we want to go to trial because we are innocent. I'm innocent and it's going to get proven at trial. And, uh, you know, he did, he ended up pardoning the other two after my trial. Um, I think it was Matt Goldstein and Clint Moran. Um, but did not pardon me, which is, I know that's still, people still think I was pardoned by him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was going to bring that up because, uh, someone I know, uh, and they have no, you know, they're not involved in any kind of understanding of military special ops or, you know, foreign policy, national security stuff. And, um, they sent me a, I think it was a, sent me a text with a link to like, I don't know if it was like a New York Times story or something. And it's like, oh, you know, look at this guy, you know, he's a war criminal, blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> and just for the record, you went to trial and you won. And it turned out, you know, that it was proven that all these allegations were false against you. Yep. So, um, and, and I think this was after, after the trial was over and he sent me this and I'm like, Bro, I was like, if you actually look into it, like you actually pay attention to what's fact, what's happening in reality, he won the trial and, and it was proven <laughs> that this was all false. And he was just like stuck on stupid, like, huh? And I'm like, yeah, just like actually do your research. Don't just scan one article and then because you're opposed to Trump, then you, that's how, you, that's your position. Um, exactly. I mean, and that's, you know, after my trial, I definitely, we got a lot of, hate um constantly like oh you know you're a war criminal and i mean i don't even get into like half the crazy shit that was sent to me but uh um i don't like those people that think like that half of them i don't blame it because they're that, that's how dangerous the media is yeah. i mean the media went on a smear campaign and put out some of the most egregious stuff about me so if you don't know me or you don't know anything behind the backstory, then yeah, you're automatically be like, this guy seems like an asshole. You know, he should go away for life. Um, and it wasn't, I, I believe, <clears throat> you know what? Yeah. I think the first interview I did that was with a more left leaning was 60 minutes and they, they did a hell of a job. Um, and it wasn't until after that where I think some of that, some of the threats and everything started dying down a little bit. Because it was more like talking about the facts and things like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, they came to our house um, and interviewed me, my, me and my wife for two days. Um, they, it was more like an interrogation. Um, they came definitely with a bias towards us. We could sort of feel it. Uh, right. But by the end, they spent two days with us. And literally, they said, like, you guys are nothing like we thought. Like this is, and I was like, well, that should tell you something, you know, about what the media, the media does. Um, and they, they put out, they put out a good interview with me that, you know, didn't make me look bad and they got hammered for it by the left leaning media. I mean, did they? That's interesting. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, so really, I mean, it's, it's all mainly because Trump got behind me that they're just losing their minds over it. They can't see, they won't look at the details. They won't, you know look at all the stuff that happened prior uh 
which is fine. That's their that's their right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I you know I can't wait to post this on Facebook. <laughs> I just want to see like the reaction from like my liberal friends. You know, um, should be interesting. So, can we talk like uh, specifically about the allegations that were made, and then um, sort of how it how it panned out in the trial? Sure. So obviously the first allegation was that I had, uh, it was premeditated murder, um, that I, I went on this particular mission with the intent of murdering an ISIS prisoner, which Mm. is ridiculous. Um, it's, but that's what they went with. Um, and so when those accusations first came out, like, this we're putting this Navy Navy SEAL is facing life for killing an ISIS terrorist. That was everybody pretty much had the same reaction. Like, what the hell do you think they do over there? Right. Um, the prosecution, which was, which was my reaction, but yeah. So the prosecution saw that and they're like, okay. So at my Article Thirty Two hearing, which is uh, the it's like the equivalent of a grand jury, um, they threw on two other murder charges. Um, out of the blue they were like oh he also shot uh, an old man and then he shot a little girl that when they brought that up i was like what the hell um yeah those (laughs) they had nothing behind those charges uh they but you know what the judge was actually this is what's actually pretty crazy too the judge said that he was like these charges should not be added because there's no basis to them you're just saying them Right. No, like, yeah, you're just saying this happened and not providing any kind of proof or anything. And so, yeah, but my the admiral of NSW said, nope, leave them on there, which I, he has the authority to do that. So that's, that's how the, those two charges got got uh, were kept. And at trial, it came out that the old man was not really an old man. And he was actually a shithead that got shot because the guy who was with me when it happened, came and testified and said this this was legitimate. And the little girl was a completely false and it was that that accusation they they got one of the uh, accusers in my platoon to sort of try and um say that he saw it and it was just it made no sense. He wasn't in the same building as me. He has no clue whether who who shot this girl. And I, I do believe he did see a little girl get shot because ISIS was shooting kids on an daily basis in front of us um i just think that he tried to put that on me um yeah and and i just want to say quickly you know how you say you know he probably did see a girl get shot there and and this is for people who are have no connection to any of this kind of thing and like i mentioned before when when these this battle was taking place you can go on twitter and see like instantly what's happening right yeah, there are a lot of Iraqis who are, you know, on the ground there and can corroborate that ISIS was doing these kind of things. So it's not like some people try to say, "Oh, you're just, you know, you listen to American media, so you don't know what the fuck you're talking about." It's like, no, actually, I listen to what the Iraqis are saying, and this is corroborated. There's videos, there's photos, there's testimonies from people on the ground that ISIS was doing these things to people. So, just for people listening, you know. Press pause on this and look into some of that and then come back to this, you know? Yeah, what they were doing over there was pure evil. And that's that's the only way to explain it. It was just some of the most savage. It's some of the most savage stuff I've ever seen on my deployments. 
Um, so that puts it into context. So then, yeah, so then sort of continuing, and then the, the guy tried to say it was you who shot the girl or whatever. Yep, so all of that got disproven. Um, you know, then uh, they were trying, so with the ISIS prisoner, they, before the trial, they were like, oh, we have four witnesses who are going to say we saw him stab, that they saw Eddie Gallagher stab the prisoner. Once trial started, they got one guy. One guy went up there, and he he had lied so much to that point that he couldn't keep up with his lies. Um, he, you know, the prosecution, when the prosecution was asking him questions, obviously they were softball questions and they had already practiced, uh, beforehand. But once my lawyer got up and started asking the, the real hard questions, like the questions nobody was, was asking, this guy fell apart. Um, he got caught in like three or four lies, which the jury saw. And then he all of a sudden got a case of amnesia and then he could not remember anything like, Crazy. So it was pretty evident. Um, and I'll tell you, the one thing that he said that really uh, <clears throat> that was a big moment for me is he said I had walked up and stabbed this guy in the neck, you know, multiple times. And that blood was spewing out of this guy's neck like baby vomit is what he said on the stand. Yeah. Yeah. In the picture with the with the dead terrorist, there is no blood on me. There's no blood on my hands. They NCIS took has the knife. They ran it through. I don't know how many times could not find any blood on it because it never happened. You know, but once he said that because he had never said that uh, blood had spurted out of his neck in any of his NCIS interviews before that. He literally came up with that on the stand. And that right there, I was like, that's the nail in the coffin, dude. Like you, you're an idiot. Um, and this is, you know, it didn't go good for him. So can you explain <clears throat> what happened that day and, and how you guys ended up having this dude in custody? Yeah, I'll do it. Uh, you know, a brief as best I can. Yeah. So we went out, um, to, you know, do our normal clearance. Uh, we had just started clearing from the North side of Mosul because these, we had to move our bases to the North. ISIS, the partner forces couldn't get through ISIS territory, you know, from the South. So it was our first day advancing from the north, and we the first place we came to was a there was like a, a pretty decent sized village before we got into like the real urban area, and that village probably had fifty to sixty ISIS fighters in it. Um, we got, you know got there at seven in the morning and actually started engaging them, uh, and without the partner forces because um, we they were running around with PKMs out in the open. Um, we probably engaged them for you know a couple hours. Uh, we killed we killed most of them before the partner forces pushed through. Uh, once the partner forces pushed through, we ended up um, hell firing one building that was we were getting uh, um, comms that there was a bunch of ISIS guys held up in there. Um, we hell fired it, killed everyone except this one individual. Um, the partner forces brought this individual back to our location. Um, on the hood of the Humvee, he was, uh, bleeding out, you know, he had, it looked like he had uh, been crushed by something, um, from the explosion or had some kind of blast injury. And then he had a uh, bleeding coming from his right leg. Uh, they pulled him off the Humvee. I came up and was like, oh, is this guy ISIS? He said, yeah. I was like, all right, we'll take care of him. Uh, we'll treat him. Um, and so 
we, I busted up my med bag and started assessing him medically. Um, he wasn't breathing, did not have a, he didn't have a good airway. So I criked him, uh, and got him a patent airway. Um, this guy definitely was, I mean, he wasn't going to make it. Um, everybody knew that from the get go. So it, we sort of treated him as a, uh, cadaver, if you would like, Hey, if you want to get medical training, real world, come up and do, you can do these, do a procedure. And they, they were procedures that needed to be done. Um, but there was no, there was no caring. Like if this guy lived or died, it was like, this is, it is what it is. There was bodies all over the place. Um, so they had about, uh, two other medics and then I think one or two other seals came and, uh, were treating him. Um, I had walked, walked away a couple times, uh, to go talk to the OIC. I came back. Um, the ISIS fighter was pretty much dead. It looked dead. Um, I asked the medic, uh, which was Corey Scott, who was at the head of, I was like, Hey, is he dead? He's like, I think so. Um, I can't find a pulse. I was like, okay, we flipped him and I flipped him in the eye, uh, which is procedure to see if he'll react to it and didn't react to that. Um, and then I poked him with my knife in the side. Now I poked him to see if he'd get a reaction, did not break any skin, did not stab him. Um, and then just, that was it. He was done. Um, and we sort of went on. We were supposed to uh, try and go back to the base because the Iraqis had stopped clearing at that point and were done for the day. Uh, we were told to stay out for a couple more hours just to uh, make sure. And that's when boredom had set in and guys were taking pictures with the body, just messing around. Um, and uh, I had actually uh, re-enlisted that same day as well. But it was not anywhere near the body. The body had nothing to do with it. You know, Of course, that's what the prosecution and the media tried to put in. So um, you, you did actually get in trouble for taking a picture with the body, though? I did, yeah. Okay. So I got I got charged with conduct on becoming a sailor uh, uh, because I took a picture with the dead terrorist. But there was also uh, 10 other guys in the picture with me, and nobody else got – I was the only one to get charged. Uh, but that at that point, it wasn't, it wasn't even about the picture. That was just the Navy's ego being hurt, and they wanted to get me in some form or fashion. Right. Yeah. So then, can you talk about, <clears throat> you know, sort of how the 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 trial ended, and, and you know what what ended up, you know, ultimately happening? Um. Yeah. So, the you know the verdict came out. Um, I was found not guilty of everything except for uh, posing, you know, being in a picture with a dead body, which that was conduct unbecoming. Um, the prosecution. So the next day after they come up with the verdict, I have to go, I had to go in and receive whatever punishment, um, or I had to give a statement to the jury, uh, to try and like lessen my punishment or, and then the prosecution gets up and gives a statement to them to try and like hammer me. Uh, they, they ended up, um, giving me four months in, in prison, which I had already served, uh, twice that almost a little bit more than twice that. So I, mean, I didn't have to go back. They had busted me down to E1, which meant that, uh, I would not getting, you know, my 20 years was pretty much erased. Uh, and they took away my pay, uh, for I think three or four months. Uh, they, 
it was like half a month's pay for three or four months. Now you got to think at that point, <clears throat> I had I had already spent all my money on lawyers just to get to this point, and then they're like, "Well, first going to keep taking money from you." Um, the the punishment itself did not fit the crime um, at all, so. It was just the Navy. The Navy's ego was hurt. Um, and that's when the president got involved for a second time. Um, you know, I, I it was a lot of sitting around after the trial. I was not I was not not even allowed to go back to work. Um, they had banned me from all the SEAL teams. Um, I was going to another base that was down the strand a little bit. Um, supposed to check in every morning. But yet I had no job. And I was told just to wait till till the uh, punishment came through before I could retire or get out. Um, we fought back hard on that punishment. We were like, this is not right. Um, and so the president ended up calling me and being like, you are going to retire with everything you earned over your 20 years and just get out, like, just get out. Uh, and that's pretty much what happened. You know, after he said that, I, I went back to work and, um, well, surprisingly enough, when he called and um, pretty much said I could retire with my rank, then the Navy or SW tried to come after me again. And it's like, okay, well, now we're just going to pull your trident. So you can't retire as a SEAL. Um, it was like this, it was a, a political, this game going back and forth. And I was the football between the NSW command, who, who was Admiral Green, who avidly was openly an anti-Trump person. Um, oh, was he? And, Oh, yeah, it was him. And it was pretty much between him and the president, you know, uh, going back and forth, trying to. Well, he was trying to, out, you know, outdo the president each time or pretty much stick the middle finger at him saying, you know, we don't got to listen to you. Uh, but it was it was a fight all the way to the end of my retirement. I mean, to the day I got my retirement ID, I was dodging little bullets here and there from the command trying to screw me over. Um. But yeah, you know, it ended up working out. So kind of just going back, you know, these are a couple of things I wanted to touch on. Um, There was an instance, I think it was one of the prosecutors had sent some sort of malware to one of your lawyers. And then you guys caught that. Yep. So just to uh, backtrack from that a little bit. So the prosecution the whole time had been pulling all sorts of shady stuff. Uh, So when we started the trial. Oh, we started actually going to court. The judge had put a gag order on all of the evidence. So that meant no one was allowed to see it besides my team, my defense team, the prosecution and the judge. No one else was allowed to look at any of the evidence. Well, the prosecution, which we they were caught numerous times, were leaking evidence to the New York Times uh, or whoever, whatever other outlets. But they were, you know, obviously... They were picking and choosing what evidence to give them. And that's where a lot of these smear articles came from. Um, that's how these they were getting all this information, uh, these media outlets. And we, we catch them and then we call them on it. And the judge would, you know, this is how they would solve it. They'd be like, hey, prosecution, are you leaking evidence? Nope, not us. All right, move on. Like nothing else was looked into. It was just there was no uh, checks and balances whatsoever. And it wasn't until um, pretty much a month and a half before trial 
the prosecution, along with an NCIS agent, schemed up this thing to send uh, a spy, a beacon, to my whole defense team. Not only to my whole defense team, but they also sent it to uh, the Navy Times journalist called Prime because he began writing articles that were favorable towards me. Um, and then they also sent it to lawyers, any lawyer that was representing guys that were testifying on my behalf. Crazy. So they were trying to get, they were trying to get all of our, um, our strategy, our evidence, everything. So they could, you know, somehow try and win. Uh, they got caught. My lawyer knew exactly what it was when he opened up the email. He's like, that is a beacon. Um, he responded back to the prosecution and said, tell me this isn't what I think it is. Got no response back. And from there, the prosecution was trying to fix what he had just done, but it was too late. Um, but the remedy that the judge did was he fired the prosecution or relieved him. And all they did was just put another prosecutor in there from DC to try and finish the job. Um, it's, uh, it was, it was pretty, <laughs> it was interesting to go through, man, like pretty, pretty gross. To, to watch so essentially that beacon would have given them access to the the emails that were being sent between people yep. mm -hmm. yeah that's insane oh I, yeah i remember reading about that and i was like what the fuck is going on that's i mean this is how bad it is and how bad they i mean that that's just one of the things they were doing to you know try and get a win they and this is what i tell people i'm like these, this prosecution found out pretty early on that their case was shit, but they had already bought into it. They had already, you know, started investing all sorts of time. And I think they let their, which happens a lot in the military, they let their career, careerism get ahead of actually what's morally right. So they just doubled down and were doing all sorts of corrupt stuff to try and win. Um, and we, you know, we were catching them along the way each and every time because they're not they're not too bright either. Uh, but, yeah, it was uh, it was pretty gross. Um, I mean, even little things when I was locked up, they were the prosecution was going in and, to, and the NCIS was telling the guards to make me snap, to make me do something. So I was getting extra treatment in the brig from certain guards, you know, getting stripped down naked, getting, you know. They would make fun of me, try and try and get me to do something, uh, but I knew it was a game, uh, so I never reacted. Uh, but that's, I mean, they were also having prisoners. They were telling other prisoners they would uh, relieve relieve them of their sentence if they could get me to say something. Um, and but of course, the prisoners would just come up and tell me exactly what was going on. Wow, uh, it's just yeah, it was one thing after the other. So it seems to me like, because there are several cases that have come from accusations that are from Iraq, Afghanistan, or whatever, and um, it seems to me like there's a humongous problem with the military justice system. Um, you know, I, I I did an interview with a guy named Fred Galvin. He was a uh, Marine Special Operations Task Force Commander uh, got into an, uh, a situation in Afghanistan. Um, they got into a fight. They killed a bunch of dudes. And then, you know, later it turned into this entire circus of false accusations, you know, et cetera, et cetera. They ended up, you know, 
through their 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 case, it ended up being proven that it was false and, and not true. And but even you know, so I interviewed him, and then just even the way that he was treated was just you know a, a disgrace, really. And um, you know, I think he mentioned this that they have a conviction rate of like ninety percent, and like the only yep. other country slash court system in the world with a higher conviction rate is China, which is a you know a fucking communist regime. Um, so it's just bananas to, that this kind of thing happens, and and it's like, and obviously you know this firsthand. Uh, but do you have any idea of, like why things are like that with the military justice system? Um, I think I, I think there's probably like a couple factors of why it has turned into this mess that it is now. Um, you know, the military justice system was first formed to protect the active duty member. That's why they formed it. So, like, if you got charged um, with something overseas or got arrested overseas, and that was the military's way of, you know, like, oh, we'll take care of it and bring him back to the States. Um, it's changed over the years now to, it's this, uh, well, there's careerism involved. So you have these officers who are JAGs who are trying to make a name for themselves or trying to make a, you know, career, pick up rank. So that they'll go to any lengths to try and get a win, which they've proven in the past. Um, and also you have, there's the element from, uh, what's the, uh, it was during the Obama administration. They, they, uh, put out, they wanted to crack down on sexual assault, uh, in the military. So this is how, and this is how the best way I can explain it. It's typically how the military works. You get an order from the, you know, guy up top. It's like, Hey, I want to put, you know, an end to the sexual assault or start cracking down these sexual assault cases. Once that trickles down to, you know, the, the lawyers or the, the prosecution, it's being told like, you will, you know, raise the prosecution level. Like we will prosecute everybody. So automatically, if you're accused of something, you are guilty until proven innocent. Like that's it. And there's a ton of guys in the brig that I met who don't belong there. It's just because of the corrupt system. Um, they, just, they they stack the cards against you um, in every way possible just so they can keep that prosecution written up. Um, and I also think, especially in my case, uh, which I saw, is just how out of touch these naval officers are um, from what's going, really going on over, overseas. They've never, you know, none of them have ever stepped foot on a combat zone nor do they have any idea what goes on over there. Um, and that, you know, I, it was funny to watch them during the trial sort of flounder around with acronyms or names of certain things and try to like act like they, they'd been over there before, but it just came off horribly. Uh, and you know, it's all theatrics and, and when you're on trial. So, uh, the, the way it ended, from from my recollection, was pretty crazy as well because I think uh, one of the accusers or the accuser had gotten uh, some kind of immunity because he agreed to go on the stand, and then he said that he, in fact, he killed the the prisoner. Is that how it went? Yeah. So I'm trying to explain that one too. So pretty much, the the prosecution granted immunity to anybody that would testify with their agenda, like. They were like, hey, if you're going to get up and say 
this stuff about Eddie Gallagher, then we will give you immunity. Um, the the uh, original accusers who I talked to NCIF, NCIS in the first place, two of them came forward afterwards to me and told me that this was all a lie, um, that this had gotten out of hand, um, and that there was nothing they, they, they could do because the NCIS was like, told them if they change their story, then they'll go to prison. Um, so what happened is pretty much the prosecution prosecution got played at their own game. So they were, they were given immunity to anybody that would say what prosecution wanted them to say. Um, so Corey Scott was like, okay, just make sure I, you know, I have full immunity. And they're like, oh yeah, anything you say, you're, you know, you, it's fine. And so he got there and was like, I killed him and they freaked out. That was crazy. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I had no clue he was going to say it either. That's the crazy part. I was just, I was along for the ride at that point. Were you in the courtroom when that happened? Yep. Yeah. Um, it was, uh, the, the media who was all in the courtroom jumped out of their seats, started sprinting out of the courthouse to, (laughs) you know, go report this. Um, the prosecution was just like, what the fuck? Uh, you know, but to me, and everyone thinks like that's like the big turning point of the trial. Like, oh, to me, that was, I was more like, at that point, we had been through so much shit that I was like, dude, this is just another monkey wrench. Now, what are they going to do about this? You know? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, it, uh, it definitely was a big moment um, for sure. It, it embarrassed the prosecution, which I was glad to see. Uh, but yeah, that's, uh, I mean, they, they got the system worked against them on that, in that, uh, that instance. So was he the original accuser? Uh, no, no. He sort of got roped into it. Um, so basically the two accusers, there's three, two, three, three accusers, um, went to NCIS and this is what they would say. They'd be like, well, we, we heard that Eddie stabbed him, but if you ask Corey Scott, he says he saw him do it. And so then Corey would get pulled in. Like, they already said, you said this and this. So they're already, everybody's already nervous going in there being like, am I going to get in trouble for something? So I think NCIS played that whole little group to, uh, I, it's hard, um, they just they played them to where it was like, OK, we got the information we wanted. You guys can't go back on what you said. Um, and uh, it was, you know, and they also NCIS also told those guys at the beginning of every interview. They said, we don't care about what you did over there. We don't care about anything anybody else did. We just want Eddie Gallagher. So pretty much. Oh, and they said that your names, <laughs> they told them that their names would never go public. No one would ever see their interviews. Their names would never get brought up again. So it gave these guys like the comfort to just say anything they wanted. Um, and you know, that's a lesson learned for them. Don't trust NCIS. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. So then <clears throat> this finishes, um, and then Trump sort of goes back and forth with the, the leadership at NSW you end up getting your trident and and retiring at what rank? Uh, chief was an E seven, and that's what you would have retired at had none of this happened. No, I was uh, I was actually an E eight. I, I, okay. I was a senior chief, but uh, 
at that point i was like i was tired of like fighting for every little scrap so i was right. just like dude i'll fire as an e7 i don't care i'm good <laughs> yeah but yeah so yeah i got to keep my trident retire with my rank um you know then uh we had already moved i already moved my family out to florida so i was able to drive across country and finally join them for good and uh we've just been trying to live our best lives out here nice and how you guys find the florida oh we it's uh you know we're up we uh bought a place up in the panhandle um it's been it's treated as well so far especially uh i think you know what the whole country experienced last year um we didn't have it even a quarter as bad as everybody else i mean i think we quarantined for about a month and a half and then they called it so it's been it's been nice okay so that's not too bad so you guys weren't all, all stuck in the house and stuff like that no no i think like i said i think that lasted for about three weeks oh that's amazing yeah yeah, because I'm in Manhattan, and it was just like the first, I don't know, six months was just fucking terrible, you know? Oh, yeah. I, I traveled up to uh, New York and Jersey a couple times last year, and I was it's like going to a different country Yeah. now. Like, just, it's sort of creepy with nobody's out. Um, but, yeah, hopefully, hopefully it gets back to normal this year. Yeah, it, you know, I was in the city a couple times. I'm also a photographer, so I was just kind of, uh, working some gigs there and um, it was super creepy because it was just like Times Square was just completely dead and being someone who grew up in Manhattan uh, it was so eerie to see it but uh, yesterday I was out in the city uh, for a couple of hours with some of my buddies and it kind of looked like normal New York which was surprising but also good to see it um, you know people yeah. out and about people at restaurants you know coffee shops you name it um, so that was pretty cool that's good, man. People need that. People need to be outside. Need to be socialized. I mean, it's it's part of human nature. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you don't do that, then you're gonna get sick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Like, yeah. You know. So um. Okay. So let's talk about what you've been up to. You know, post uh, post trial and and you know after you retire. Sure. Um, so we at. During the trial, a little bit before, we had uh, my wife and I had uh, come up with the idea we were going to start a nonprofit <clears throat> called the uh, Pipeitter Foundation, and that the goal of that foundation was to help you know service members out that are going through the exact same thing we just did. Um, so we knew, like most service members, don't have the money for civilian lawyers or good lawyers. Um, at all and that's exactly what you need when going through a corrupt system so we raise money if we if we take your case on um you know you apply to uh, our site i have a board that looks at the case if we all agree like yep this is a person we want to help then we will raise money for your legal defense we will also provide emergency response or not emergency relief funds uh to your family during that stressful time if you need it um and we also will do advocacy for you if you want it um, meaning we'll go, you know, on podcasts, talk about it or post about it to try and, you know, gain the attention it deserves. Um, we include law enforcement in there and also, uh, first responders. So we actually got that up, um, last April up and running and, um, it's good. We've helped out, um, a, 
a pretty good amount of service members and some law enforcement. Um, obviously, it was very difficult to raise to raise funds last year due to the uh, the COVID and everything, but we're making it work. Um, along with that, I um, started writing the book as soon as I I got out called "The Man in the Arena," and it's it's about everything that happened, you know, that my last two years, two three years of uh, service, and just so I did that just so people could get the truth. Um, because I guarantee you there's, there's so much stuff that happened that people don't know about. Um, and you know, we don't, the media didn't report it or they would they. So <clears throat> we, uh, decided to tell our story from, from our side. Uh, so my wife, um, is, has chapters in it. So does my brother, uh, my legal team, you know, from their perspective, I actually have other seals, um, who are anonymous, in it, write it from their perspective. Um, so it, it should be good. Um, and hopefully it'll be, like I said, it'll be out in May, uh, the pub date. So that, that took all year, uh, pretty much a lot. Of, I'm, I'm still dealing with it right now, working on tie ups and loose ends of the book, but that was the chunk of my, le- my year last year was focusing on that. Um, and then I've also, um, have started a brand, um, the seat battle brand. Um, and I was working with nine line, uh, on that. So we have apparel through nine line and also I'm selling, um, um, some ARs, uh, 14 and a half and 10 and a half inch ARs through uh, precision tactical, uh, the seek battle rifles along with, uh, some paperweights that look like brass knuckles. Um, so that we're, uh, selling those. Um, and we're just, I mean, it's been, it's been a ride since I've been out trying to figure out what I want to do. Um, but luckily I have my wife by my side who, who's, uh, she's very, uh, business savvy. So she helps me out a lot. Okay. So if there's anyone listening who may want to connect on the, um, on the foundation side, where can they go to do that? Uh, so it's, uh, pipe hitter foundation.org, uh, I believe. And, um, you know, you can also go, you can find it through, uh, my bio on Instagram, uh, Eddie underscore Gallagher is my Instagram handle. And then also I have, we just built our own website. So it's the Eddie Um, you can find everything that, uh, my wife and I are doing and who we're associated with on those platforms, uh, including the pipe Hitter foundation. And if people want to maybe purchase a rifle or check out some of the apparel, they can do that there as well. Yep. Through all those, yeah. So there's links to connecting to uh, everything on those. And we try to make it as uh, simple as possible. Okay, awesome. Yeah, it was it was great to sit down and, and do this, man. I, you know, I appreciate you uh, uh, taking out this time to come on here. You know, it's a uh, it's this this entire case was something that I followed uh, somewhat extensively, um, and, and having friends who are seals and and sort of just talking to people. And, and getting their opinions on things, um, you know, I knew you were getting a uh, a raw deal from the start. Uh, but yeah, it's it's. I'm glad that it worked out for you. And um, yeah, man, it, you know, I appreciate you uh, doing this. Like I said, and, and I want to thank you for your service as well. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. I'm, thank you for what you do, dude. And I, I appreciate the. Uh, I've seen the past guests that you have on. You've had on some real heroes, and I'm glad that you give them the space to tell their story man that needs to happen a lot more often i appreciate it yeah no worries and and quick i want to give a quick shout out to uh jason higgins at um easy day hemp solid dude 
my man. Yeah. Love Jason. And uh, definitely, you uh, haven't tried Easy Day Hemp, do it. It's, uh, it works. It speaks for itself once you uh, start taking it. it helps with sleep. Um, and also, if you work out, it helps with uh, speedy recovery as well.
Thank mm-hmm. you.